Okay, so we've been going through the book of Daniel, we've come to the end of chapter 7, and I wanted to spend another week just thinking through some of the implications of uh, chapter 7. Um, we have spoken over the years many times uh, of the concept of intertextuality. Intertextuality is something that most people today are familiar with, even if they've never read a Bible before. Because intertextuality is alive and well in our culture. Um, you know, anyone who's watched the Marvel movies uh, even is familiar with the concept. The idea is that, you know, you're reading one book and it's making a reference to another book. Or you're watching a movie and there's a reference to some other aspect of popular culture. And there is this constant referencing. And very often in modern culture, it's kind of like with a little bit of a nudge and a wink. And uh, if you're clever, you'll pick up on what I'm saying here kind of stuff. When we come to the Bible, intertextuality is astonishingly important. And the reason is, is that in the Bible we have, as we know, 66 books. But in another sense, we have one book. In the Bible we have 30 different authors, but in one sense we have one author. And, and so there is a constant story... And from Genesis 1 through to Revelation 22, we have a journey that we're going on. And principles are being built, foundations are being built, and then built upon, and then built upon. Themes are being initiated and then developed, and so on and so forth. And, and I think, and I've said this many, many times, and I don't apologize for repeating it. I think it's necessary for those who are newer here. But... We, we have 66 books in the Bible, which is like a TV show with 66 seasons, putting it into modern parlance, right? And, you know, there is this tendency that we have to jump in in season 53 and say, well, who's that person? I guess that's what they mean. And we don't have any of the foundation. The, the extent to which we neglect our Old Testaments is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And one of the ironies of that is that the fruit of it is that we don't understand our New Testaments either. Because we don't understand the context and background. So this morning, because this passage in Daniel 7 that we spent a few weeks on is so important, I want us to understand it a little bit more from an intertextual perspective. So let's Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. So keep your ribbon or bit of paper or something in Daniel 7, because we'll, we'll be back, as Arnold says. Um, and we'll go to, to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is pretty well known. In the year that King Uzziah died, most Christians don't know anything about Uzziah other than he died, and that's when Isaiah had his vision. But... This is Isaiah 6. It's a well-known passage of scripture because Isaiah has a vision. Now, a couple of things we need to understand about Isaiah's vision. When Isaiah has his vision, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Now, many Christians misunderstand this vision. Because Isaiah sees a vision, he sees a vision of the Lord, the Lord on his throne and what have you, there is an implication, sort of implicit, that when we read this, we think, oh, he's having a heavenly vision. He is being taken in a moment into the realms of heaven where God is seated on his throne. And historically, amongst most Christians, certainly those in the pews, that has been the sort of presumption that comes with this text. But earlier on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was speaking... Um, I think chapter 2 is particularly helpful in this regard. Isaiah was speaking about the latter days. And in the latter days, Isaiah 2 verse 2, it shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people should come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And what we see in chapter 2 is we see that on the earth that God comes and establishes his kingdom and establishes his throne upon the earth. That's the context of Isaiah 6. Now the way that Isaiah works, for those who don't know, um, is that Isaiah 1 to 5 is like, a, is like a, a prologue, as it were. It's kind of five foundational chapters. And then the story, as it were, kicks in in chapter 6. So we've got this kind of foundation before we get to chapter 6. And it's speaking about the time in the latter days when God will come, establish his kingdom on the earth, and God will have a throne in the temple that he will be on But it won't be in heaven, it will be on earth. So when in Isaiah chapter 6, we see the Lord on his throne in the temple, we shouldn't be thinking of heaven, because contextually, what we should be thinking of is that Isaiah is seeing what will happen in the latter days. That God will, as he promises throughout the scripture, will come and establish his kingdom, not just in heaven, but on earth. And so... Isaiah 6 is not Isaiah having a brief glimpse of what's going on in heaven. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah being given a brief glimpse of what the earth will be like in the latter days. And specifically, when Isaiah sees in those latter days, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And so God is on the throne. The word here, Lord, is not the the covenant name of God. It's Adonai. It's talking of his power. Because he is the one that is high and lifted up. And it is that one who is upon the throne. And then we have the familiar scene with the seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole, what is full of his glory? The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see my point? He's talking about what's happening on earth. So Isaiah has a vision in the future of when Christ will sit upon the throne. And for us as Christians, it's easy for us to see this as Christ. Because here, this Adonai, this Lord, this God is high and lifted up. And when we come to that famous passage in Isaiah, you know, a little bit later on in the book. And it talks about the, the suffering and sacrifice of the Messiah. It speaks about him who was high and lifted up. That connection is made. The one who sits on the throne, 
is the one who will suffer and die. It's the one who will make atonement for sin. It is him who is both God and man. That's Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, in that whole section where you have the, the, the virgin birth, and you have the one who's going to come, and the government will be on upon his shoulders, and he will be mighty God. That one who is born of a virgin, who is man, who also is mighty God, that one is the one who will physically sit on a throne. So, in summary, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord on his throne in the temple, but it is a vision of the throne on earth at the time of the kingdom that essentially Isaiah is seeing Christ exalted in his earthly kingdom. Now, when we come to Ezekiel, so you can skip forward a bit, we're heading back to Daniel gradually. When you come to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has lots of visions. Ezekiel's a fascinating book. Ezekiel is, uh, is like, um, like Zechariah, like Revelation, and like portions we've seen of Daniel. It has an apocalyptic flavor to it. Angels giving visions and explanations of visions and lots of strange goings on. And Ezekiel has many visions. And he has one vision multiple times. And one of the main passages of that is right at the beginning in Ezekiel 1. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, he has a vision. And the vision is one that, though it contains many, many, many details that aren't contained in Isaiah 6, there are enough details... For us to recognize that we are perhaps seeing the same thing. Just as Isaiah sees the throne, so Ezekiel sees the throne. Though more details are given of the throne. Just as Isaiah saw heavenly beings and angelic beings, so Ezekiel sees angelic beings. Though there is more detail. But what is fascinating, and rather than read the entire chapter, what I would like us to look at is from verse... um, 26 after we've seen more about the angelic beings and their wings again paralleling Isaiah 6 we're told in verse 26 and above the expanse of their heads that's the angelic beings there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire so we have the same throne just like we do in Isaiah 6 and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. What we had in Isaiah 6 was that we had Adonai, the Lord, the boss, the master on the throne, high and lifted up, holy, 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 clearly God. Isaiah gives us a clue Because when we see the suffering servant suffer in Isaiah 52 and 53, he is spoken as one who was high and lifted up. And that's the connection. Ezekiel becomes more specific in that when he sees the throne and the likeness of a throne, he also sees the likeness of a man. Now, if you were clever... When you were reading through Isaiah, if you followed Isaiah's story that begins with Adonai high and lifted up on the throne receiving glory, 
And then in the very next chapter of Isaiah, you see a virgin birth as a sign to the house of David. And then in chapter 9, you see the virgin child that is born is then declared to be God. And then as the story continues to go on, we get to the point where that, that child born of a virgin who is a king that will be an eternal king, who is both God and man, will also die for the sins of his people before God lifts him up. Then Ezekiel's man on the throne should not be a surprise to you because you know that the Lord who is on the throne, though in Isaiah 6 he is clearly God, he is also clearly man, which again is a theme of the book of Isaiah, the God-man. Anyone ever tells you that the deity of Christ is, an, is a, not even a New Testament concept, that it's a concept that was invented by the church centuries later? That's a nonsense. We could do a 10-week series. I'm tempted to do it. But we could do a 10-week series on the deity of the Messiah purely from Old Testament texts. It's an absolutely categorical doctrine that is taught again and again in various ways. Not as clearly as in the New Testament, I grant you that, but certainly clearly enough. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So when we come, as we are now, to Daniel 7, when Daniel sees this vision in Daniel 7, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. In one sense, we're seeing the same vision, but in another sense, we're not. Because the Ancient of Days seems to be a terminology that is used of the Father, perhaps. We'll come to that in a moment. He took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, the throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Now look, what we have here is someone who is clearly God, who is taking his seat upon a throne... And the throne is fiery flames, and its wheels, this throne has wheels, are burning fire. Now, we didn't look at that in detail because we're skimming through, but the throne in Ezekiel 1 had wheels. The throne in Ezekiel 1 had fire. So there are connections here to Isaiah 6, and there's connections to Ezekiel 1. We are seeing the same vision. And... Again, we're given more detail. Verse 10. A stream of fire issued out, came before him. Thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And so additional details are given in that he's taking a seat for the purpose of judgment. Now, we then have some revelation in 11 and 12 about the horn, the beast, and the beast is killed, and that stuff we talked about in recent weeks. But then we come to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Okay. So the Ancient of Days is upon the throne for judgment. Okay? Now, what have we seen in Ezekiel 1 and in, in Isaiah 6? We've seen God upon the throne, but God is also a man. That's what we've seen. We've seen the wheels, we've seen the fire, we've seen the angelic beings, we've seen so many other similarities. We've got this same vision one, two, three times now in the Old Testament, with additional detail given each time. And now we come to Daniel 7, this third time, and we see the Ancient of Days upon the throne, we see the wheels, we see the fire, and we say, Aha! 
It is the same thing. But there is a key difference. Because the Ancient of Days, who sits upon the throne in Daniel 9, is not the one of the likeness of a man in Ezekiel 1. He's not the Adonai who is high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. And that becomes clear in verse 13. Because there is a separate person, one like a son of man, who came to the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days is distinct in person from the one who is like a son of man. And he was presented before him. And now look at this glorious verse. Verse 14. This is brilliant. And to him, that's the son of man, who's been presented to the ancient of days. So this is what the ancient of days is doing to the son of man. To him was given dominion and a glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, the Ancient of Days gives all authority to the new king, who is one like a son of man. In other words, what we see in Isaiah 6... What we see in Ezekiel 1, we see the moment that that comes to pass in Daniel 7. For the man to sit upon the throne, the one who is already upon the throne must give him the authority to sit on the the throne. He gives him the dominion. He gives him the kingdom. And this is why. He, behold, with the clouds of heaven, he comes. It's as if we have God the Father on the throne in heaven, and then the Son of Man comes in the clouds, and he is given authority to rule. And regardless of intertextuality, the connection between different books of the Bible, there is also inner, or some people say intra, textuality, which is, which is the connections in the same book. And for those of you who've been with us since we started in Daniel 1 a few months ago, you will be familiar with this language. You'll be familiar with the language about a kingdom that will last forever. You'll be familiar with the dominion that's an everlasting dominion, and you will be familiar with the fact that all peoples, all nations, all languages will worship in this kingdom. Because that was what we were told in Daniel 2, it's what we've been told in Daniel 4, it's what we've been told in Daniel you know, 5, and, and so on and so forth. In other words, in the book of Daniel, specifically in the Aramaic section, chapters 2 through 7, there is this message to the Gentile world to say, you've got your king, but he is going to be replaced because he's not in charge. And there's one who is overall. My God, Daniel says, is overall. And your great king of gold will be replaced by a king of silver. And that king will be replaced by a kingdom of bronze. And that kingdom will be replaced by a kingdom of iron. There will be a a succession of kingdoms. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. Because there is a God who oversees them all. And again, how topical is that for our world right now? The God who sits upon the throne, the Ancient of Days... He oversees the lifting up of kingdoms and the bringing down of kingdoms. 
But then, in the visions of Daniel, there was a stone that crushed the feet of the statue that then filled the whole earth and became a mountain. There is one final kingdom that will come that will be an everlasting kingdom. So what Daniel 7 is doing is it is completing the theme of the book of Daniel to this point, and it is continuing the thread from Isaiah to Ezekiel to Daniel, and it is showing us that the one who comes to establish a kingdom that the ancient of days will say you son of man you who is like a son of man you who looks human you are the one that will be given this kingdom you are that king you are the king that after all of these earthly kings will come and have a kingdom that will never end upon the earth and what Isaiah saw is he saw that man who is both God as well as man, sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, on the te- on, in the temple upon the earth. That's what Isaiah saw. So Daniel 7 is showing us the inauguration, the coronation of the new king at the beginning of his kingdom. That the ancient of days, who has overseen the various kingdoms upon the earth, The ancient of days who has seen and has been sovereign over the rising of kingdoms and the bringing down of kingdoms. The ancient of days who is overseeing Russia and Ukraine as much as America, as much as anywhere else. Because he is the one who is sovereign over nations. One day he will appoint and he will oversee the coronation of the final king. His king. Psalm 2 tells us of that king that will be appointed, who is not just the king, he is God's own unique son. And he will have a kingdom that will never end. And all of this rising and falling of nations. And all of this talk of war and rumors of wars and actual wars and sin and all of these things. This king will come to conquer all. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what Daniel saw. Isn't that amazing? So when we come to Daniel 7, we are coming to a passage that has a rich background of intertextuality. That Daniel is not just concluding, he's not just continuing the thread of the book of Daniel, though he is surely doing that. But he's also showing how what he says is continuing the thread regarding the coronation of the messianic king, which is a theme that we've seen specifically in the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel, but also that is a theme that is contained throughout the scripture. One of the great mysteries to me in the church today is how you can have such huge portions of the Bible speaking about a coming king who will have a coming kingdom and Christians just allegorize and spiritualize it all away. And the book of Psalms is from, you know, right from the beginning, Psalm 1 and 2, we have this righteous man who is God's son, God's king, who will have his kingdom and everybody will either kiss the son and bow in reverence or they will suffer under his wrath. 
And the book of Psalms continues to talk about that king again and again and again. Isaiah talks about the king. Jeremiah talks about the king. Ezekiel talks about the king. The minor prophets talk about the king. There is a king coming. And he will have a kingdom. And of course, our friend Daniel says so much about this king. Wow. So we've got a bit of background. And by the way, we could have done that in a 20-week series. I mean, there is so much about the Messianic King in the Old Testament. I'm giving you a glimpse. I'm helping you to see that what we see in Daniel 7 is not isolated. It is part of a rich heritage of, of Scripture and a development of theology through the Bible, really from Genesis 3, quite frankly. In Genesis 3, we have the sin coming into the world, and God says regarding um, to, to the woman that there will be a seed of the woman, a descendant who will strike the head of the seed of the serpent. That will be our little horn. And he will crush his head, but he will bruise his heel, which is the suffering of Christ at the cross. And so there is the promise of a man, seed of the woman, who will come and redeem mankind right from there. And that king, that theme, that Messiah, just runs right the way through Scripture. But what I want to do now, for the remainder of our time, is go from what precedes Daniel to go further on and see how Daniel 7 is then used. And again, this is going to be equally frustrating for me because it's going to be equally brief. We're not going to have the opportunity to go through the book of Revelation in the depth that I would like, where you see Daniel 7 fulfilled there again and again. We might touch on it briefly. But the passage that I really want to focus on is the one that Kathy read for us earlier this morning, which is Mark 14. So let's turn to Mark 14. Mark 14 deals with the arrest of Jesus. He is brought before the council. And... We'll pick up in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest. It's fascinating, isn't it? He's seized by Roman guards, and yet they bring him before the Jewish high priest. We'll leave all that for another day, but anyway. All the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now... The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. In other words, they had their conclusion before they had their evidence. And as I said to you, and there's a connection there with the book of Daniel, because we touched on this topic in recent weeks, but uh, as I said to you before, may that never be true of us. May that never be true of us. Newsflash, you are not God and therefore, you do not know the hearts of other people. You can judge people on their deeds. Someone does something, you can say, you did something. If someone says something, you can say, you said something. That's pretty good, because although you're not God, you have eyes and you have ears. But you cannot say, you wanted to do this. You thought this. This was your intention. Why? Because you don't see hearts. Because you're not God. They knew that Jesus was wicked because they just knew. Now they just need the evidence to prove that. The heart of man is such. And so we need to be careful. Anyway, little little rabbit trail. Um, 
They were seeking testimony to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Listen, I'm being very self-controlled here because I could talk for a long time about this trial, this kangaroo trial that was put uh, that Jesus was put into. But just notice just a couple of little things. Notice here that false witness includes speaking the truth with a wrong intent. In other words, we're told here of a testimony where he says, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. In other words, I'll destroy this temple physically and then rebuild another. That's not what he said. He said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. That's what he said. And the temple he was speaking about them destroying was the temple of his body. So they kind of told the truth, because he said something kind of like that, but not exactly right. If you're going to criticize another person, another theology, then make sure you understand it. That's rule number one. We need to have a standard, Christians, that is higher than other people. Though they might come to us with ad hominems, to the man, you know. Well, you say, I, I think that God this and that, and I think the Bible this and that. And Well, you're a stinky breath, nasty, you know, whatever, you know. And, and it's like, you know, we, we see stuff like that, and we say, okay, that's not good argumentation. But it could be much more subtle than that. Are we attacking a person or are we attacking the argument? Are we addressing the error or are we at attacking the person who's made the error? We've got to be careful about stuff like that. And the other thing we have to be careful about is the concept of a straw man. When we present, we say this is wrong and this is right, we have to make sure that the wrongness that we are presenting is what the person actually believes. Because here we're shown how easy it is to take the words of Jesus and just shift the pronoun here and just shift an intent there and just, just change a couple of things here and make out that he is saying that he's going to do something he never said he was going to do. A misrepresentation. If you want to tear down an argument, you have to understand the argument that you're tearing down. You have to. Otherwise, you're misrepresenting, and you're presenting straw men, and you are no better than they. We need to have higher standards. So, again, I'm slightly distracted. I'm getting to the point. Um, yet even about this, the testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. One of the joys of Christianity is all the promises of God that he makes concerning us, you know? Romans 8, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't that a glorious promise? And then Paul to Timothy, if you seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. What another lovely promise. <laughs> Promises come in different forms, right? People will slander you. Jesus said, blessed are you when people speak falsely of you. One of the hardest things for us to, to do as Christians 
and, I, and some of us find this particularly hard, uh, confession time, is when people say things that aren't true, when people misrepresent, there is always this desire in our hearts to correct. You know, you've seen those memes about, you know, darling, are you coming to bed? Just, just a moment, somebody on the internet is wrong. You know, well, if, if, if the wrongness is about you and your character, you can multiply that by 5,000, right? Well, I've got to tell them that I don't believe that and that I think this and what have you. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is to be silent and allow people to be wrong about you. Trusting that the judge of all will make fair judgment in due time. Trusting in his sovereignty and putting aside our tools. It's not a direct comparison, but there are certainly parallels in Romans 12 where we're told that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We have a tendency to bring justice. We have a tendency to put things right. And we have to let go. 1 Peter 2. And entrust ourselves to him. Him who will be the judge of all. And so Jesus is silent. One of the most fascinating things in all of these gospel accounts of, of Christ at his, um, in, in the lead up to his crucifixion is when he was silent and when he wasn't silent. Because, because you, could, you could look at this to this point and say, you know what, Jesus is just trying not to rattle them up. He just wants to keep himself silent. He just wants to, you know, he's not going to respond. Oh, really? He's not? Let's, let's read on another verse or two and see what happens. But it's interesting that when it comes to correcting, misunderstanding about him, when people present false witness, when people lie, when people try and, try and set him up, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself, to correct him, what have you. But then when he gets the opportunity to speak the truth, boy, does he let it rip. Let's have a look at what he says. Again, the high priest asked him, this is midway through verse 61. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence here, but at the same point, I don't want to presume that you know things that you may not know. So let me just, let me just say it in unequivocal terms. Jesus' surname wasn't Christ. Because right? some people think that. And, and we laugh. And if you've been in a church for many years, you know, it, it is funny, isn't it? But, but at the same point, we took Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that. Why would anyone think otherwise? Right? And we forget what Christ actually means. Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. What, when the Greek says Christ, the Hebrew says Messiah, essentially. It means the anointed one. And we have, as we've said, this rich history of one who is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is God's chosen servant. But also, and this is a linking to Psalm 2, he's God's son. And one of the biggest errors of Pharisaic Judaism, and there were lots. In fact, you go through the gospel accounts... And after we've done Daniel, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And Matthew, of all four Gospels, shows this the clearest. In that is that Jesus is in constant conflict with the Pharisees. But he's not in conflict with them over Moses. Jesus completely believed in Moses. 
He believed in the testimony of Moses. He believed in obeying Moses. And that's not surprising to us because he gave the law to Moses. And in his humanity, he was required to keep that law. In fact, the only reason that the law was fulfilled and that you and I can now freely eat bacon without committing sin, the only reason that the sacrifices are now done is because Christ fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. But he was in constant conflict with them over their interpretation of Moses. His issue was not with Judaism. His issue was with Pharisaic Judaism. The Judaism of the day. He didn't have a problem with, with the Bible, obviously. He had a problem with their interpretation of the Bible. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard them interpret Moses this way. Let me show you how I interpret Moses. And that's the conflict that's constantly going on. And one of the biggest errors of Pharisaic Judaism was, is that they focused on the Messiah as being the Son of God, being the glorious King, being the one who's going to come and establish his kingdom, being the one in Daniel 7 who's going to say, hey, other kingdoms, we're done. It's now our kingdom. It's now the time for the Jews to have their kingdom. Daniel 7 goes through those four stages of kingdoms. Chapter 2, it's the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the iron and clay. And when Daniel said that initially, the only kingdom that is there is the gold, is Nebuchadnezzar, is Babylon. By the time Daniel dies, we've got to the kingdom of silver, the Medo-Persians. By the time of Christ, we've gone through the kingdom of bronze, the Greeks, and we've now come to the Romans, which is the beginning of the fourth kingdom. So the, the, the Pharisees and the Jews are wanting there to be the fifth and final kingdom, which is the one who is the stone, the Messiah of Isaiah 8, who's going to come and who is going to become a mountain that will fill the whole earth and bring to an end the time of the Gentiles. They're excited. But they've forgotten that the Son of God is also the Son of Man. They've forgotten that in Isaiah 6, the one who is high and lifted up is the high and lifted up one of Isaiah 53, who is going to die for the sins of his people. They've forgotten that God has to come as man because man, unlike God, can die, that he might atone for the sins of his people. The focus was on the glory of victory as opposed to John who saw glory at the cross. And so they want to know, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah of the Old Testament? Are you the one who is the son of the blessed? They don't like using the name of God. The blessed would be a shorthand of that. Are you you basically God's son? Are you God's son? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one of whom the Old Testament spoke of? And Jesus could not answer any more clearly or any more emphatically than he answered. And he says this in response. Jesus said, I am. Well, that's a pretty cool statement to start with, isn't it? Because we know some of us will know the implications of that. The, ex- the, the exodus, I am that I am. The, the use of that in John chapter 8 with regards 
to Jesus before Abraham was, I am, and all of this. So there's a statement of deity perhaps even there, but there is definitively a clear, yes, I am the Messiah. And he could have ended it there. He could have said, you know what, you want to find the Messiah? Yep, I'm the Messiah. He could have ended it there and he would have offended them hugely because they understood that there was a Messiah who was coming. They understood that the Messiah was going to be a man. They understood the Messiah was going to set up his kingdom. But they seem to have forgotten as well that the Messiah was going to be God. And Jesus at this point says something that is absolutely provocative. I do not think that as Christians we should be the shock jocks as they used to call those DJs who would deliberately say offensive things. I don't think we need to go out of our way to cause offence. The gospel is plenty offensive enough without us being unpleasant as well. That said, the idea that we should not say things that might offend people is absolutely indefensible when we look at scripture. And I think that this passage where Jesus, who let's remember, is love incarnate as well as God incarnate. Jesus, who is more loving, more gentle, more merciful, more kind than any of us could, could imagine. We could spend the rest of our lives studying scripture and studying how loving and merciful and kind Jesus is. And we still wouldn't really fully understand how kind and loving and merciful he is. And yet Jesus says to them something that is deliberately provocative. Deliberately going to rile them up. Why would he do that? Because it was true. And they needed to hear the truth. And they needed to, to, if they're going to crucify him, crucify him for who he is. And not for any false declaration or false testimony. And so what he does at this point is he points them to Daniel 7. He says, I am and you will see the Son of Man. That's the phrase from Daniel 7. Seated at the right hand of power. What happens in Daniel 7? The Ancient of Days on the throne gives the throne, gives the dominion, gives the glory, gives the authority, gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. To one like a Son of Man. And so it is, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, a Daniel 7 reference. And the coming with the clouds is to show that the one who is coming is, is you know, the coming in clouds, again, without going into too much background, speaks again of his deity, specifically. And though we might not pick that up, we're going to see in a moment, they clearly did. But I think it also links us more to Isaiah 6. In that the Son of Man who comes on the clouds from heaven to the earth will take the throne on the earth. So we have here a declaration of the Messiahship, that the Messiah is both man, Son of Man, and also God coming on the clouds. We also see here that he will be the one that will rule and will reign. But I think more than anything else, what we have is we have a bunch of sinful, depraved men who've reneged the authority that God's given to them, 
who are tyrants who've gone beyond the authority that God's given to them, who had a responsibility with regards to the things of God and yet have become enemies of God. And they, fallen human beings, they are standing before their creator and they're taking authority over him. And who do you think you are? And are you really suggesting you're this? And he looks them in the eye and says, oh, I'm him. One day, I will come in judgment. One day, you will see me not here like this, but you'll see the one who is man, and yet, though he is still man, he'll come on the clouds. And he will come in glory. And he will come and establish his kingdom. And at that point, there can be no misunderstanding. That the Pharisees who consider themselves to be the theological keepers of the kingdom, that they who stand opposed to this man will have no place in his kingdom when he comes to establish it. That they have now gone from being the people who consider themselves servants of Moses and they have now been firmly put in the, in the Psalm 2 analogy which is constantly here in this kind of language that they are the ones who God mocks. They are the ones who don't like to be confined by the rules of God. They are the ones who refuse to kiss the sun. They are the ones who will find no refuge in him. They are the enemies of God. And one day they will be put in their place. And so the passage ends. What further witnesses do we need, says the high priest, as he tears his garments? We've heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy? What blasphemy? Oh, he declared himself to be God. How can he get away with such a thing? Well, that would be because he's God. That's how he gets away with such a thing. And you know, and, and you, you need to understand the dramatic irony, the literary irony that goes on in the Gospels. That Jesus, who said to them, and, and, and let's be clear, in John chapter 2, this is a command. This is absolutely a command. Destroy this temple and I will build it again. Many versions have an if there because of the way the command is structured. But it is a command. In other words, if you destroy this body, and you must, if you destroy this temple, and you must, I will rebuild it again in three days. And here, he declares to them that he is their Lord, their Adonai. He declares to them that he is the one who will be high and lifted up. He declares to them that he is their God and their creator. And they understand it. He's declared himself to be God. That's why they're tearing their garments. We may lose some of that connection through the mists of time and through not fully understanding the context and the, the culture. But they understood it. Look at the response. He's declared himself to be God. And now... The one who is God is getting them to obey him. Because now that they consider him guilty of blasphemy, they're going to make sure that his temple is destroyed. That's the irony. He gave them a command and they're going to do it. It's delicious irony when you think about it. 
and he will rebuild it in three days. And in that resurrection, he shows himself to be who he said he was. No more signs, Jesus told the Jews, will be given to you, except the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man is going to be in the earth. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. That's the last sign. That's the last thing you have. That will prove. Once he rises from the dead, then he is shown that he will also be the one who will come on the clouds. Friends, we live at this weird time in history. It's encapsulated by Hebrews 2 and verse 8. That Jesus, who is in control of all things, doesn't look like he's in control of all things. That he, who has shown himself to be God, and shown himself to be the one who will have an earthly throne as well as a heavenly throne, doesn't yet have his earthly throne. He has a heavenly throne, but we look at the earth and we say, are we sure he has a heavenly throne? But he does. And so kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and God remains on the throne, and Jesus Christ will one day return, and we can be absolutely certain that what he said here in Mark 14 is true, and that he will come in the clouds, and that he will come and establish his kingdom, that he will fulfill Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7, that he will do that, and we know he will do that, because he rose from the dead. That, my friends, is the perfect segue into us together, brothers and sisters in Christ, coming to the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the rich intertextuality of scripture. We thank you, Lord, for Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Gospels, Revelation, which we didn't even get to. And Lord, just how your word can be trusted. Lord, forgive us when we only see a glimpse and we don't see the big picture and we, we see because of our dull eyes, we see inconsistencies that aren't really there, where we have confusion where there doesn't need to be. And help us to become motivated and, and give us the, the, the practical tools that we might become real students of scripture, that we might discover more and more how your words can be trusted. And may we see, as we look at your word, ever more the glory of your Son. And as we have our heads bowed, let's just take a moment as we now are going to come to the Lord's table. And let's just get our hearts ready. We don't want to come to the table of the Lord, to come to take communion presumptively we don't want to come with sin and wickedness in our hearts unconfessed we don't want to presume his mercy in that way but at the same time I don't want any of us who are his to not come to the table because of guilt how ridiculous when we have before us a picture of the mercy and the forgiveness and the redemption that is in Christ and to not take it because we are so aware of our sin.
It's because of our sin that we need to come to the table and be reminded again. And so, Lord, we pray now that those sins in our hearts that your spirit convicts us of, Lord, may we confess, may we agree with you that those things are wrong and wicked. We've fallen short again as we do. We've ignored the promptings of your spirit that you gave us and listened to the cries of our flesh, which you have conquered. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Thank you that we have redemption in the Son. And may we come to the table boldly and confidently, knowing that you have made a way for reconciliation between God and man. Justification of the sinner in the eyes of a righteous God. Father, we, in our hearts now, confess to you our failings, both general and specific. We don't ask, Lord, that you would set us free from our sin. We thank you that you have set us free from our sin. May the table today be another reminder for us to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, for those of you who haven't done communion with us before, we are, we are very all-inclusive Baptists here. We do grape juice and wine, <laughs> so you have a choice. In the cups here, on my left, your right, is wine. And then here, uh, in the middle, is the uh, grape juice, if that's what you would prefer. Um, the grape juice cartons, tubs, whatever they are, cups... Um, have on the top layer a little wafer so the bread comes included there and this pile here of bread is separately and the difference is also that's gluten-free so I know some of you have allergies so there's gluten-free bread there so there's wine, grape juice and, and bread and, uh, and gluten-free bread so uh, you come and take as you choose um, let's come up together take the bread and the cup as we, as we choose and go back to our seats and then we will take them together in a short time Just keep coming up and grab the elements. As you do so, I'm going to read from Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant 
like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The bread that we have, as I hope we know, represents the body of Christ. It is without yeast, unrisen, because the yeast represents sin. and He was sinless. And it represents the broken body, the body that they saw and that was marred, broken, beyond human semblance. He became man, one like a son of man, because God could not die. The incarnation of Christ allowed him to die, that he might come and die in our place for our sins. The breaking of the bread was great suffering, but him becoming man was such a great humiliation that he who created the universe would become a man and be killed by the very ones he created in our place for our sins. Let's take the bread together. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all his blood his death for our sins. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that you struck him instead of us. We don't understand it. We cannot fathom it. But we rejoice in it. You afflicted him in our place. You placed upon him our punishment. That you might take him and crush him. That he may be high and lifted up 
and exalted for his act of love, for his sacrifice, for our redemption. As he entrusted himself to your faithful hands, as he entrusted himself to you as he suffered and died, knowing that you who judge justly would one day lift him up to great glory, may we who follow him, may we who seek after him, may we trust you too. In times of loss, in times of crushing, in times of affliction, knowing that you who judge justly will one day lift us up as we remain faithful to you. Amen. Thank you.